0: Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, good. Fellow empty nester. I'm almost an empty nester as we record yes. this. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a tough reality, isn't it? It sure is. I, I at least have. It's. I've gotten to wade into the water rather than being pushed into the deep end because. John, my boy twin, we dropped him off at school. Um, his move-in date was August 23rd, and then we headed back home from New Jersey, August 27th. That being my husband and me, is the we. And then Daphne, his twin, John's twin sister, we don't drop her off until Saturday, September 16th. Because oh, that's her, nice. Yeah, her school is uh, Seattle University, and it's on the quarter system, whereas John's Montclair State is on the semester system. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes. Well, that's so kind of to-
1: nice. Yeah. I- you a little mm-hmm. breathing room there.
0: Yes. So Daphne's definitely not as um, tight with that. She's kind of a cat, whereas John's more of a dog and they've always been that way. And so it's not like she'll like sit around and snuggle and or watch tv or you know go out to eat with me something like that she's like oh can we get takeout and i'm like man then you're just gonna disappear to your room to eat that takeout (laughs) (laughs) instead of watching dance moms with me like your brother (laughs) would (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. so and you left your younger child out there in colorado while you went back to yes i
1: did and Mm -hmm. then later this afternoon My oldest is getting on a plane to go to Denver where he will start his first official career job um, in about a month. And that one is hitting me particularly hard because this Mm. is the moment where I can say he will never again live underneath my roof. You know, although I'm not sure we can can we say that with a surety in this day and age. You know? <laughs> can. They do do these bounce back sessions, but you know, I mean, I think it is it's a bit of an official moment, and it's yeah, uh, yeah,
0: ugh. <laughs> and also be careful what you wish for. I was thinking about that on my run this morning. That I remember vividly. Maybe I've talked about this on a previous episode, but being at dinner when my older daughter was a senior in high school and we were the whole family was there at the dinner table you know so no after school things people weren't out with their friends and this was let's say January of 2020 and I thought oh this is probably one of our last dinners you know I could count on two hands you know how many family dinners we'll have together oh I would give anything for more family dinners together Welp. I got it. Night after night after night. <laughs> no one was going anywhere and yeah. we were eating at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Can I tell you, in, in the weirdest way, I thought that was one of my happiest little periods of life. I loved having both my kids like forced under my roof 24-7. I mm-hmm. really did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Although, you know, and then, I mean, again, comparing, contrasting to to lockdown and the pandemic and the few times where I was the only person in my house during lockdown, you know, like, I don't know, maybe the kids would be on a bike ride and one would be walking the dog and I don't know what, you know, my husband would maybe be at the supermarket, you know, all masked up and everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm alone in my house. This is so glorious. And now it's like, well, I'm alone in my house. Right, right. Totally. Totally. Silly people, silly mama. I, know. I know. Oh my gosh. Well, John has taken to college like a fish to water. We barely hear from him. And yesterday I finally broke down. I was like, hey, I'd really love to talk to you. I texted him and I said, you know, tomorrow after 1230, my time is anytime after 1230, my time's great. And he's like, yeah, I think I can work that out. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Should I send you a Google Calendar invite?
1: (laughs) Right, right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah.
0: you know, he'll heart a text or, you know, give it a thumbs up or a, a thanks. But no, not much. I've, I've even, I've taken to looking on his Instagram account. I it didn't look quick enough because Molly, you know, my best running friend, she was like, oh, that was such a cute picture of John with the playbills. And did he go see funny girl? And I'm like, oh, where was it? And she's hmm. like, oh, it was on his Instagram story. Oh, well, by the time I got to it, it was gone. Oh, so, that's a bummer. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But he did go into Broadway. He met a friend who is a freshman at Barnard. Met her at Funny Girl, and they saw it was the Saturday matinee. And the next day was Leah Michelle's last performance. Oh wow! So, yeah. So he said it was. Uh, he texted his dad and said it was the best singing he's ever heard on wow, stage. Wow, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. And then, so like my parents, I there was an article in yesterday's New York Times about Leah Michelle and her, you know, this. Final performance and how it really revived her career and and, da, 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 da. and so I cut it out and I'm going to put it in a note card and send to him. I'm like, oh my gosh, another generation of Bowens sending things from the New York Times. That's so excellent. <laughs> That's so excellent.
1: I had it's so funny. I had Aunt Ruth who used to always clip things out and send them to me always. And Aunt and Ruth. I find I do that as well and. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'd become Aunt Ruth. And, I, you know, <laughs> we used to, it was a family joke how much stuff she would send in the mail. And and here I am, like maybe a lot of mine's via email, you know,
0: sharing links, but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I realized that I could go on to nyt.com and send him the link or, you know, look it up on the app and text it to him. There's other ways of doing it. But I'm like, oh, but it's that really pretty picture of her on stage with the white roses on the ground around her. And, you know, Right, right. I like it. I like it. Oh, my goodness. Well, it'll be interesting to see how our children progress. I'm interested to stay in touch about this.
1: Yes, for sure. And how
0: parents do. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> let's not forget us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we are talking about kind of the ins and outs of a medical tent at a race. It's a place no athlete wants to end up, but when you need to, it's wonderful to have knowledgeable experts there to help you. And that's what we have with us today. So first up is Shelly Weinstein, the Marine Corps Marathon Organization's medical operations officer, who's also a board-certified sports physical therapist. In her role with the Marine Corps Marathon Organization, Shelly oversees the care, logistics, and management of 12 annual events, seeing 45,000 runners and 120,000 spectators a year. Thanks for joining us, Shelley. Thank you for having me. I
1: really appreciate it. Shelly, tell us a little bit about your running background. So I used
3: to run a lot. I was never very fast, but I was in the military for years and running is one of the requirements. And I I honestly found it to be my mental health. Just get out there and run. Didn't start running till I was in my early 20s before I joined the military. And I got about fo 24 good years of running before I started to have some hip problems. And so that just made things a little bit more difficult. I've now had a total hip. Um, so I walk. I speed walk right now to try to maintain my fitness. Um but the nice thing is I get to work for an organization that I still meet and get to take care of a lot of runners so that keeps me in involved in that particular area
1: very nice and on that topic talk to us a little bit about your professional background and how that kind of led you to getting involved with the Marine Corps marathon
3: sure you know I think sometimes things just happen by chance so I was active duty in the military as a physical therapist stationed at Quantico in Virginia And the clinic always coordinated a lot of the medical care for the Marine Corps Marathon. And so I was told that I was going to be the person coordinating the care out of the clinic. Didn't really know what I was doing my first year. I had run it the year before. And when you see it from a runner's perspective, very different than the backside. So I thought I could coordinate everything and get everything done weeks ahead of time. And then I very quickly learned that that isn't how things roll. So, I did it the first year and just kind of fell in love. Didn't really know what I was doing, except I ordered extra ice because it was going to be hot. And I think that may have saved me. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, they were increasing registration to 30,000 for the 30th anniversary. And I was asked if I was interested to stay on. So, I did. So, I did some of my FEMA training and some other training in endurance medicine and large scale events. And then when I left Quantico, I got asked if I was interested in staying on, and by this point, I was so hooked, and I so loved it, that I did it for 10 more years, while I was still on active duty, and then when I retired, um, they decided to hire a full-time medical coordinator, and I applied for the position, and I just celebrated my eighth year anniversary as a paid employee of the Marine Corps Marathon Organization.
0: Nice. 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 So before we get to that medical tent, it's it's my understanding that you and your staff, I, I imagine, decide where aid stations should be on a course. Is that right? And if so, talk us through those decisions.
3: Yes. So in the organization, there's the operations branch, and that's who I work for. And they're responsible for the course and kind of setting things up. And then I, fortunately, we haven't had to change the course very often. We go out and we look at where the best location for those are. And it's actually with Uh, fire EMS on both sides of the river, so Washington, D.C. and Arlington, because those are the coordinators who I work with. And we look at based on past history. So we now have lots of data that tells us where things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also requirements. So D.C. has some permitting requirements that you can't go more than so many miles without having an aid station. But then we also have to look for spacing, putting up a tent, egress and getting an ambulance there if we need it, how we get the staff there. So on our race course, we have eight locations on the course itself. And then we have five locations from the time you finish our race until you get to Roslyn in the metro, which is kind of the furthest point away from our operations of the race itself. So we have 15 aid stations for our race.
0: Mm, So many considerations. Yes. just never realize all the machinations involved (laughs) in that decision.
3: It does. It takes a lot. And every aid station kind of has its personality of what you'll see there, the number of people you need there, and how that aid station just kind of jives and works and what happens in there. So having lots of years of experience helps me to understand that so that I can better inform the volunteers who work there so they know what to expect but also so our, our medical teams know what to expect and we can be
1: prepared, although you always have to be prepared for anything because stuff can happen anywhere. Right. So let's start at square one. Can you give us a general rundown of what the folks in the medical tent do, including how many people are on the medical team of a large marathon and those kind of details? Sure. So we are the fifth largest
3: marathon in the U.S. However, one of the differences between us and the world majors Is We have almost the same number of runners, but we give no prize money. Um, You run, and when you finish, there's a young Marine officer who salutes you and puts the medal on your necks. So that makes us a little different. And also, you don't have to qualify to run a race. So the runners we see tend to be much different than the elite runners and some of the other runners who have to qualify for a race. So for instance, our finish time is about, median finish time is about an hour and four minutes slower than the runners at Boston. So, and we have a lot of first-time marathoners. It's a bucket list. So when you look at the total medical team, and that includes people in the aid stations, the roamers out on the course, the fire EMS teams, the amateur radio operators who support us. The liaisons we have in the hospital—we are just shy of a thousand people who support mm-hmm. the medical
0: team. Wow, wow! Again, the, the I, guess I just this is like you know a, a room or something that I never knew existed, and there's so so much in the room. My goodness! <laughs>
3: don't get it? Runners don't want to see us. We understand that. We, you know, what I tell people all the time is when it's cold, medical tends to be bored. I'd rather have bored medical people than busy medical people, but we're there in case people need us. Mm -hmm. And it's really what I would call first aid plus and then emergencies. So the first aid plus is the blisters and the muscle cramps and someone fell down and scraped a knee or they have an injury that they've been running through and now it's just nagging them. So they come into the aid station for very quick turnaround, you know, anywhere from two minutes to probably 10 minutes. And those are the physical therapists and the athletic trainers and the Navy corpsmen who are kind of managing most of that. And then there's the emergencies. And the two that we are most concerned about are exertional heat stroke, which happens a fair number for us at our race. Um, And that's when someone's core body temperature gets very high and they become confused. And if they're not cooled very quickly, they can get very, very ill they can have damage to their organs, to their muscles. And if it's really not taken care of, they could die. And that is one of the things that we do exceptionally well at our race because our Navy medicine people who support us do that as part of their training with the Marines all the time. So heat choke is probably the most common serious thing we see. But then the other is someone who has a cardiac arrest. Um, their heart stops for whatever reason, and we are there to get things started and take care of them. And I tell people all the time, um, we just had, we had a case last year. The gentleman survived and it was a textbook case. Someone saw him standing on the side of the road. He approached him. The man passed out. The runner helped him pass out. Two other runners started CPR. The EMS vehicle was there in less than three minutes. The man was cardio converted with Um, an AED and talking in the ambulance before he went to the hospital. Wow! And, you know, I tell people, had he been out on a run in his neighborhood, I'm not sure that that would have been the same outcome. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And not that we ever want, again, medical likes to be in the background, but we are there for a reason in case someone gets in trouble and our volunteers, because they are all volunteers and they come from all over the country to support the medical teams and they are amazing and phenomenal and so caring. It's just so neat to to see all of these people who come because they want to help.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So I'm amazed heat stroke is so common at your race, which is the final weekend in October.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, is that just recent, have a recent uptick? Or is that something you have seen for, you know, across your eight years that you've been in this position, we've seen
3: it across the years. So, of the last eight years, discounting the COVID years, we've had six hot years. So, oh. and for us, we identify hot, which is kind of an interesting discussion. What is hot? So, for us, if we start, if our race day temperature starts at 60 degrees or above, we will be busy because by the time our runners finish, we're looking at temperatures in the um, mid 70s. And for two years, we did hit 80. Now, last year was cold. We didn't get out of the 60s and it was breezy and medical was very bored and quiet. And in 2011, it snowed the day before our race Ooh. Um, when the kids were running. And that next day, it never got above 35 degrees. And medical, the the medical providers and medical people were pitiful because they were cold and they weren't doing anything. But the runners were feeling fantastic.
1: Hmm. So what are some steps that you'd like every marathoner, especially a first timer, take so that they can cross the finish line in good shape without needing any medical attention on the course or in the finish area? Yeah. So I would say the
3: first thing is hopefully they've trained well, you know, and again, sometimes life gets in the way and maybe your long run wasn't as long as it should be, but at least that you've done training. So you've got your base. I think the other thing is not going out too fast because when you're surrounded with 20,000 other marathoners and you don't really keep to your pace, a lot of them tend to go out too fast and then they kind of get in trouble at that halfway mark. The other thing I would say, probably the most important is mark the back of your bib with emergency contact information or any medical, or if your race uses a electronic health record or some other form that allows you to upload information, That can only help the medical providers in the aid station tent to treat you appropriately. And then finally, I would say if you're really not feeling well, and no one wants to be a DNF, I I get it. I I absolutely get it. But if you're really not feeling well, you need to realize it's just not your day, and you need to get on the bus or go into the aid station and come back home so that you can run another day.
0: Mm Yeah, that's such an important message to get across to people. So and that sort of leads us into our next question, which is how can someone know they like when to seek help during the race? Because I got a sense from gals on our Facebook page, someone literally wrote that they worry about taking away time and resources from someone who needs it more. And I mean, that is classic put others ahead of yourself attitude that we just need to break.
3: That I think we do as moms all the time. Mm -hmm. I would say we triage. So when you, and and as do most of the marathons, most of the marathons, the big ones in the U.S., we all talk to each other. We all share information and best practices. We're collegial and trying to help each other. When you come into that tent, you're going to be triaged. So if it's a blister, they're going to send you over to the podiatrist or the physical therapist. We also have a lot of students, nursing students, med students, and they can do some of that care with just some oversight. If you come in and you're really not feeling well, we're going to send you over and you're going to be seen by a licensed provider, whether that's a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA. We're going to have nurses there. We are pretty good at looking and hearing what you have to say to triage people in the tent. So we have the more serious side of the tent and then we have kind of the more common Low level injuries, we can get you in and out you know in a couple minutes to fix a blister or to stretch out something. you know we'll get you back out there in two or three minutes. We know that you don't want to lose time on your race, but it's the ones that you know are sick that we will spend time with if we need to
0: because i th- I think that is another important message to get across is that walking into that medical tent doesn't mean that your race is over. correct.
3: Most of our runners who come into the tent actually continue on. There's very few that we say you're done. And then even sometimes we'll recommend that they be done, but the runner's not quite there. Mm-hmm. And we'll see them report to another aid station tent later on, and then another. And then sometimes they that's when they realize it. And we'll caution them, you know, to let them know what we're concerned about and why. But ultimately, they need to make the decision. But again, we're going to be right there letting that next tent know, Hey, we just saw this gal. Her bib number is she wasn't looking good, but she really wanted to continue on. Can you just have some spotters out there looking at her? And Mm. we do that.
2: Mm.
1: Okay. So related to all of that, at what point is it not safe to push through the pain?
3: So a, a couple of things. So when you start, here's the irony is one of the things is when you start to get confused but you may not realize you're confused. But if you're running with someone and you start to get confused and you're kind of not sure where you are and what's going on, if you're with someone, they need to get you into an attempt right away. That's just a sign of several things that could be wrong. I think also when the pain is so significant with a musculoskeletal injury that you're really starting to hobble or alter your run, you're just asking for trouble because now that, you know, That ankle injury or that tendonitis now becomes a knee injury or becomes a fall with a land on a knee or a fall on an arm, and then you sprain your wrist or break a finger. So I think when you really start to alter the way you're moving, it's really time to just say, I'm done for the day. Let's come back another time.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, and how about after the race? When should you really go to the med tent? And one person on our Facebook page said that, you know, trying to convince friends to get in there after the race can be challenging. So are there some key factors to push them to get checked out short of them actually, you know, falling to the ground or something like that?
3: Yeah, the go to ground is a good indicator that they should come into the tent. And we have spotters out at the last quarter mile of the finish coming up to the finish. People looking, there's a lot of cramping because our race finishes on a hill. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of muscle cramping, especially in the calves and the legs. And we have a group of people out there who are spotters, medical spotters, who are looking to see what you look like, what your color is. Mm -hmm. We want you to keep moving. And then in our race, the nice thing we have is we actually have progressive aid stations at our finish because there's the adrenaline piece, right? So you cross the finish line, you're excited, you've done it. Maybe it's a bucket list thing or you have a PR and you don't feel anything, right? You're still excited because you're still moving. So you bypass the first medical tent because you haven't dropped. And you go and get your food and your drink. And then you walk up and you're starting to walk into the Finnish festival area. Well, there's an interesting spot up there where people just start to realize what happened and the adrenaline leaves them. Mm. And now they're not feeling so good. They're a little nauseous. They may have a little vomiting. They may just not feel well at all. And so we have another aid station there. And then finally, we have two aid stations in the Finnish festival. One is right near where people meet their families and their baggage. Because the other thing, when you stop moving after running a marathon, that's never a great thing, right? Because your blood drops to your, to your leaves, your brain and your organs and goes to the bottom of your legs and you feel woozy. And then that very last aid station, it's interesting. The people we tend to see there. I would say are the over 50 runners who have some other comorbidities. So maybe they have diabetes or they have some other things. And by that point, many of them just see that red cross and that tent and they think I need, I need to be looked at. So a lot of people do fat past those first two tents. And that's the beauty of our setup, and we know that based over time, that you sometimes you just got to let that adrenaline rush leave the person before they figure out that they need to seek care.
1: Mm. Okay. So what's the line for what can be treated in the tent and what requires evacuating an athlete from an event? I mean, I, the obvious ones are probably heart attack or being struck by a vehicle, but what are some of the other ones? Um, so, those, so those athletes who have heat stroke, who we suspect may
3: have been hot enough long enough that they've done some damage to their kidney or their other organs. There's something called rhabdomyolysis where your muscle actually starts to break down. And it's very difficult for your body to process that. We can do some basic labs at our aid stations. And if those readings do not make our providers happy or the person just doesn't seem to be recovering, they are transported to the hospital. And that really is the majority of who we send. Now we have had a couple people with fractures. So we had one lady who had been training with known hip pain and she tried to gut it out and she ended up with a stress fracture that she actually completed. She was sent to the hospital. But a lot of runners, you know, again, they don't want to go. We can't physically force them. So we try to educate them as much as we can. But in 30,000 runners, like I said, the people with heat stroke, we might transport anywhere from twenty-five to thirty of them, but other injuries are really very, very minimal, because we can treat them and get them home to family members or leave with a family member or friends, and then a lot of times it's following up with their physical therapist or their primary care provider later in the week.
0: Mm-hmm. So how have things changed in the medical tent since you first began eight years ago and the time before that, both in terms of treatment and the type of injuries and issues that bring athletes in? I, I'm particularly thinking because of this kind of newer wave of newer runners, yes. you know?
3: So a couple things. So I would say back when I first started 20 years ago, my first few years in the tent, we did not have as many supplies and things that we needed because there hadn't been a good history of what needed to be taken care of. Hmm. So for instance, we have a lot of physical therapists and athletic trainers who can work miracles in the aid stations with KT tape and different things like that. And we didn't have all that stuff then. So part of that may be my professional bias as both a PT and an athletic trainer, Mm -hmm. that we have those things in the tent now so we can keep some of those runners going. They're safe to continue to run, but we're trying to minimize their pain and discomfort. The other thing is the staff and the volunteers. So when I first came on board, we'd have... You know, a very, very small medical staff in the aid stations who were not always trained in endurance medicine and what that means to take care of. And I think over the years, we have such a strong volunteer following now. To me, it blows my mind that people come back and they want to be at the state aid station because they met this nurse or they met this doctor or their friend is, and they formed friendships outside of the marathon and they work other events. So I think there's this camaraderie and the education, I think, has gotten much better for both the runners as far as the things they need to look out for and how to hydrate better and how to fuel better. We still have some that need education, but I think that's much better than it was 20 years ago. And I think our medical staff, we do a lot of training for them. We do some YouTube training. We do some live training two weeks before the race. Every other year, we have a medical conference that we invite people in. So I think the education is probably the biggest thing that's changed in my 20
0: years. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Shelley. Well, thank you so much for joining us and good luck in these weeks leading up to the race.
3: Thank you so much. I, I appreciate you having me on and uh, may everyone have a great afternoon.
0: Great. All right. You take too. care. Thank you. We're going to take a break to hear from the brands that let us bring you this free content. Please support them like they support us. We'll be back with our second guest shortly. Here is that promised second guest. It's Katie Powers, a registered nurse and lactation consultant who has worked in the medical tents of numerous races, including the New York, Chicago, Houston, and Cowtown Marathons. She also has volunteered at the Venerable Boston Marathon, and Katie was in a medical tent right near where the bombs went off at the 2013 event, which we'll ask her about. And I should mention Katie is the person who suggested this topic, as well as uh, put me in touch with Shelly. So welcome, Katie, and thank you so much for uh, making this happen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, Okay, so you are not a runner, but you are plenty active. So tell us briefly about taking up ballet dancing later in life.
2: Well, I was an Irish step dancer um, and was diagnosed with cancer and had to quit everything for a couple of years and uh, came back and saw an ad for uh, a ballet company that was looking for adult ethnic dancers. And I'd returned to Irish dancing at the time and thought, well, I'm an adult and I'm ethnic. So uh, I went to the auditions, auditioned, and didn't realize I was not to be invited back. But I showed up anyways, and uh, just was determined to learn how to do the mazurka for Coppelia. And when it was all over, when I went back to the Irish dancing, I just and a bunch of 12-year-old girls, and I thought, something's wrong with this picture. So I went back to the ballet company and said, do you have beginner classes? And they said, no, but you can stand in the back. And that was the beginning <laughs> that's <a good> <laughs> and uh, twenty years later, I'm starting to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: so Katie, tell us about your professional background.
2: Well, I'm a mother, baby nurse, childbirth educator. Uh, have been a nurse for 51 years, which seems hard to say since that's probably older than either one of you ladies. Mm-mm. Mm, no. <laughs> and so I've always been involved with, with mothers and loving that and uh, just thought that was my niche. And then in 2014, no, it was 2009, my husband passed away in 2008. And in 2009, I was really floundering. And one of the nurses here was getting ready to run the Marine Corps marathon. And she knew two of our boys had joined the Marine Corps after 9-11. And she was telling me about her training. And they had run cross-country And I knew how important it was to have someone at the finish line. And I flippantly said to her, oh, I wish I could be at the finish line to cheer you. And she said, well, they need nurses. I said, they don't need a nurse like me. I do babies and moms. And she said, call them. I Googled the phone number, got Shelly Weinstein on the phone. And uh, she (laughs) said, can you do a blood pressure? I went, well, sure. She said, well, come on up. And that's how it got started. So I now tell people when they ask me what kind of nurses I, a nursing I do, I tell them I do mothers and runners. Mm.
0: Well, the perfect place for you to be right here right now with us, Katie, then. So I know that the 2013 Boston Marathon was relatively early in your medical tent experience, and, and we could do an entire episode talking about that terrifying experience. But can you give us a brief kind of audio snapshot of what it was like to be there on that horrific day?
2: Our tent was very close, and we have, I'm always in tent A, and we always have a big widescreen TV uh, that shows us the finish line, and I was taking somebody's blood pressure when the first bomb went off, and I thought there was something wrong with her because I'd never, ever heard anything like that through my stethoscope, and I looked up at the TV, and it had gone gray, and I went to take my stethoscope off and to say something to the physician when the second one went off. And at that point, we knew something had happened, and we have a man in the tent, his name is John, and he has a microphone, and he just started talking to us, just keep taking care of who you've got, Mm -hmm. and we're going to let you know what's going on. I think we had 150 runners in the tent at the time, and we have 175 beds in tent A. Uh, So we then were told to start processing them out as they brought the wounded in. And we treated over a hundred people in the wow. tent and no one died oh. in our tent. Yeah. It was, it was wonderful. We went from sophisticated first aid to trauma triage. Yeah. Almost effortlessly. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. That's incredible. We were the good news. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So changing gears and turning to a happier mm-hmm. topic. We love that you're able to merge your lactation expertise with race Uh events. Tell us about your involvement facilitating the availability of lactation stations for athletes at various races.
2: Well, it's kind of funny. uh, The Marine Corps marathon people, they're just so fabulous. Well, they apparently started getting some phone calls one year about, I'm going to need to pump after the race. And, um, I remember Karen telling me that she said, well, we told them we'll have a lactation consultant there for you. And they thought that Marine Corps marathon, they're so accommodating, not realizing I'm there every year. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Put on that hat. Put on that hat, Katie. You got to be a lactation consultant. <laughs> so yeah. So basically, they just told
2: them to come to Tent A, which is where I was. And uh, so anyways, I would set aside an area. And then uh, more and more women were calling and saying, I'm going to need a pumping area. And so Nicole Donovan, with the New York Marathon, she actually last year set up a complete free-standing tent. It was called the Laxation Station. And uh, she did a very wise thing. She got a pumping company involved. And I went over to visit it. And uh, it was great. They had all their pumps there. They had snacks there. And Boston this year also had a special area.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Love that. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, Katie, so as a non-runner, do you feel there are qualities runners possess that might make them more apt to end up in the medical tent? Like we sometimes cling too tightly to our goals, making us risk our health or kind of push away common sense?
2: Well, you know, I want to address, you had mentioned earlier a question that came up on Facebook Mm -hmm. about don't want to take up another space. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm not that sick. I don't want to take up another space. Mm -hmm. I go with, if you think you have a headache, you have a headache.
1: Mm.
2: And we're there to take care of that headache. If you have any inkling, something might not be right. They should come into the tent. Don't worry about taking up a space. That's why we are there. So um, I, I love listening to your podcast because it helps give me insight into how runners think mm. and what their concerns are. So I find your podcast very, very beneficial to me as a volunteer so that I can better take care of runners. Hmm. I find that they all have a story. They all have a purpose. And one of the things I love about working the long distance races is most of them, they're not expecting to win. And I tell them always, you won when you stepped up to the start line. Hmm. That's where you won this race, just getting there. They tend to be very hard on themselves. And so it's an honor and a privilege for me to help them hopefully be gentle with themselves.
1: Yeah. Is something offered in the med tent that you wish more runners would take advantage of? And do you think that runners think that even if they step into the med tent, it means it's the end
2: of their race? There's a lot of psychology when they come in. I'm finding it hard to put it into words right now. Um, Our job is to make them feel glad they came in I hope that when they leave, if they run another race, they'll go, It's okay to go into the medical tent. Mm. They're nice people, they're gonna take good care of me and I'm gonna feel better. I don't ever want anyone to hesitate. And I think when they do leave, they're always they're always surprised at how nice everyone is. <laughs> and I find it's interesting a lot of the foreigners that come in are so afraid they're gonna get a bill. And they're so surprised they go, No, we're all volunteers. No one's gonna get a bill.
0: Mm. It's pretty much the only time in the U.S. healthcare system that you won't get a bill. So (laughs) let's all go get our medical treatment and medical tents in America. (laughs) Well, you know,
2: I, I that does happen too um I've had a <laughs> one particular runner that I would see him in almost every race and he would seek me out Stop. I want you to do my blood pressure again Katie <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: oh. Oh. I well, suspect, the uh,
0: there's something else or, at work there I, I think that he might know that you are a uh, widow and uh, he has other interests in mind i don't
2: know <laughs> <laughs> well actually at, at Houston it was really kind of funny one time I had this runner he was a uh, in his 20s he he was so nice and I was I was walking him he came in he wasn't able to walk and we got him up and I'm, i was walking him trying to determine whether or not he could be discharged and he says to me ma'am are you married I said no I'm not married I'm a widow he says oh are you dating I said no no I'm not dating he said Matt why I <laughs> said well no, no one's really asked me he's all well, You got to come back to Houston. We got to get you a boyfriend. You're a nice lady.
0: (laughs) Um, um, Hey, hey, but jokes aside, if, if a spectator is feeling unwell, they can go into a medical tent at a marathon. We're never
2: going to turn anybody away.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: we have had spectators brought in. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Mm Yeah. One time I was at Boston, it was the Boston 5k. And, um, We, a bunch of us volunteers had, we had finished the 5K. We went down to watch the kids running because they were having kids. It was a year after the bombing. And um, we were just standing there and someone said, there's someone over there that that needs some heartburn medicine. I said, oh, really? So um, I looked at the other nurse that's with me and said, let's go over and assess. And we took a look at him and I looked at her and she looked at me and she said, I'll get the AED. I said, yep. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Mm. And there he was sitting there having a heart attack.
0: Oh my wow. gosh! And Tums was not going to cut it. Wow. Tums Tums wasn't going
2: to cut it. Mm. No. Yeah, yeah, he had wow. come to see his granddaughter race. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: So the women who hang around another mother runner are wonderful and helpful. And we've got one RN who asked how she could get involved in volunteering at a race. What advice would you give someone like her?
2: Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just do it. Do it. You will. Uh, you'll have the. You'll meet amazing people. You'll have amazing experiences. And you use your basic nursing skills. Mm-hmm. It's about vital signs. It's about having an eye and you're never alone in the tent. If you can't figure out what's going on with this patient and what needs to be done, there's always somebody there that will be able to help you. So you just go to the volunteer page and look for medical team. Click on it and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to sign up. Oh. And You get some really cool things. I know I, we all love bling, right? <laughs> so Marine Corps Marathon, you get the coolest t-shirt. Uh, Boston Marathon, you get a great jacket. Mm. And New York Marathon, you get a jacket and a t-shirt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so, but but for that, you come up from Florida. To I mean, yes. I assume this is all on your dime that you're doing this.
2: It's how I choose to spend my money, is what I tell people. Mm. That's mm. really lovely. I love
0: that. Yeah. Yeah, who you know? I
2: get more than I receive. Trust me. Mm. And like Shelley was saying, you meet friends. You you know you uh, like when I show up at each race. It's like, yes, how have you been? It's been a great year. Although Facebook has made it, you know, we're all friends on Facebook. But then I have also have other traditions that go along with every marathon that I work at. Um, I dance. Mm. So actually, uh, at, at Boston, I dance with a dance company. And they refer to it as, uh, I fly up on Wednesday so I can dance with them on Thursday. And they call it Marathon Thursday because I'm there to, t- to be there for the marathon.
0: <laughs> so you mean you, t- you take a class or you perform?
2: Yep. Okay. No, I take a class. Okay. A
0: class. Yeah. Yep. Nice. Nice. Okay. And
2: I dance in New York. I dance. Yeah, I dance everywhere.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, i have to make it so you and my son, John can be in a dance class together in New York City. I That'd think. be awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so okay, so ending up in a medical tennis, no laughing matter, but, but obviously we have shared some, some laughs here about the, you know, the gentleman in Houston who wanted to be your, you know, matchmaker. And, and, um, gosh, I was thinking while Shelly was talking about this one runner that I met at, might've been our very first ever house party. And she had slipped on a banana peel, literally on a banana Mm -hmm. peel at the (laughs) Chicago marathon. And she fractured her hip and yet she finished the race. Yet yet even she was able to laugh about slipping on a banana peel. So, (laughs) so so have there been other situations that ended up bringing some levity into the tent?
2: Oh, I can give you a good one. So, Like Shelly was talking about, we have medical meetings. So it was like the day before the Boston Marathon, I had attended a symposium, and this uh, cardiologist who specializes in cardiac issues with athletes had given this amazing talk. So the day of the marathon, we're halfway through the day, and this young man ends up in my section. And so I start assessing him. He looked really nervous. And as I'm assessing him, it was like I was listening to the lecture from the day before. So I called for cardiology to come and take care of him. I said, This is this A, B, C, and D is going on. We did an EKG on him. Sure enough, the guy was in the middle of a cardiac event. Mm. So he was, you know, the EMS was coming in to take him off to the hospital. So as they lifted him up, put him on the stretcher, I leaned down to wish him well, and our lips met. I went, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he's looking at me like, oh, oh. <laughs> And of course, everybody saw it. So uh, I told, mentioned, had mentioned John earlier, who's, who has the microphone in Tent A at Boston Marathon. So when you need something, you go up to John and say, I need a thermometer in Section 12, I need this. In sec-. So it became...
0: We need a kiss in section five. You know, so I
2: became the laughing stock of the whole tent. <laughs> That's
0: great. Forget the flying nun; it's the kissing nurse. So. <laughs> oh, oh goodness! Well, Katie, again, I'm so glad that you brought this topic to our attention and that you suggested Shelley, and that I recruited you into being on the podcast. This was just a ton of fun talking with you.
2: Thank you very much for having me okay. and you do amazing work and thank you for inspiring so many people to
0: move on. Mm, thank you. That's very lovely. Thank you. And thanks for listening and and taking away, you know, the, the lessons and the insight that you gained from our podcast. That really warmed my heart hearing you say that. All true. Hmm. So Amanda, I think I forgot to ask you, have you ever had to stop at a medical tent during any of your races? I can say fortunately, no. How about you? I have saw it after I PR'd in 2009 at Eugene Marathon. I was when Shelley was talking about people who look like they're about to drop to the ground. My friends did have to come up. I was a very unusual color and the entire backside of my body was just seizing up. And so my friends did have to come get me as soon as I walked across the finish line. So they just they walked me over to a tent. I don't remember actually going in but i got ice because i remember then we use you know saran wrap or whatever to put ice uh, hold it back on the backside of my legs so okay okay yeah, yeah but no yeah. no iv or a- anything so yeah yeah thankfully yeah that's yeah. good yeah so i d- i don't even remember there being a t- i just remember being kind of uh not a shed, but I don't remember a tent per se. <laughs> In my confused state, there was no tent. Uh. Shed, <laughs> yes. a Quonset <laughs> hut, because we're Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! All right. Well, please join us for our next running retreat, perhaps our last running retreat, because we are considering pressing pause on retreats for a bit. This one is going to be held on Hilton Head Island, which believe it or not is shaped like a running shoe. It is going to be November three to six, and that is just off the coast of South Carolina. We bring in guest presenters, have group runs on the flat, super wide hard packed beach, eat fantastic meals, do yoga, uh, form all sorts of friendships and laugh a whole bunch and this is all with a front row seat of the Atlantic Ocean from our host hotel which is called the Beach House and as I said this might be our last retreat for the foreseeable future so these are the last days that you can register so please consider doing that go to anothermotherrunner.com click on events in the top navigation bar and you'll find all the details and register there again go to anothermotherrunner.com and click on events at the top of the home page our podcast today was produced in Saint Paul, Minnesota, by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. Have, have I told you that story, Amanda? That that he had to wear for a, an audition these list of things that said it said a dance. The boys had to wear a dance belt. So we went to the store and asked what a dance belt is, and it's a quilted on the inside. Thong, you know. All right, and, um, you know, uh, banana holder. Let's yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. uh, some but other th- th- these. It was. When it was. I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, and other boys showed up with a leather belt over their um, tights oh, and t-shirt. Oh my gosh, I would die. Oh. That, is <laughs> yeah. the
1: that
0: is the best. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would it. have loved if it was like a grow grain like preppy belt or something. Right. Right. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh, that is great.